Hello, hello, and welcome once again to a Beatles podcast show, which we call Things We Said Today. This is a bi-weekly program in which we talk about anything that has to do with the Beatles. Could be about their years together, the solo years, their history, their music, what's going on in the news, which we do in virtually all of our shows now. Anything that comes to mind, we can cover here on the show. I'm Ken Michaels. I'm one of the three regular co-hosts of the show. Hopefully you know me from my syndicated Beatles program called Every Little Thing, and also another podcast show on the Beatles' solo years and recordings called Talk More Talk. And I'm being joined by my two other co-hosts, first of all, our resident musicologist, who has authored a number of Beatle books, including Got That Something, How the Beatles... I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything, and The Beatles from the Cavern to the Rooftop, and that's Alan Cozen. Hi, Alan. Hello, Ken. Hello, everyone. And also, we have a veteran DJ in New York who has been on WFUV for 30-plus years, and he's their Beatle guy there at the station, and that's Darren DeVivo. Hi, Darren. Howdy, everyone. We have a special guest with us this time. Um, This is someone that I've had the privilege of knowing for a few years now. I first came to the attention of this guy because he was actually doing a Ringo Starr tribute show at, uh, was it the Cutting Room, Joan? It was the Cutting Room, yes. Yeah, all Ringo music. I never heard anybody do all Ringo in a concert. Um, He plays the bass. He plays guitar. He also plays keyboards and drums. And he has quite a resume Uh, to talk about because he spent was it seven years you told me with alan parsons oh seven years okay that's correct and in addition to that if you're familiar with the happy together tours he's been in the house band for those shows and uh, also way back in the early 2000s there was a tour called the walk down abbey road for which there were two tours i believe were there two john there were two full-length tours uh and then after that, I think we just did a couple of one-offs. Uh, that's when I came in. The, the The first one, it was basically an all-star. It was Walk Down Abbey Road. It was an all-star uh, Beatles tribute. There was going to be sort of a loose Beatles theme. Artists so, sort of connected to the Beatles. And then I think they dispensed with that. It was Alan Parsons, Todd Rundgren, Ann Wilson from Heart, David Pack from Ambrosia. And the bassist was John Entwistle on that first one. The following year... Uh, it was Alan, Todd, Mark Farner, Christopher Cross. Denny Lane. Uh, no, Denny Lane was the following year. But that, that second year, Jack Bruce was the bassist. And then 03 was when I joined up. It was Alan, Todd, Denny Lane, Joey Mollen from Badfinger, and, and uh, Christopher Cross. So I was in the house band for that one. Okay. And that got me, that introduced me. It was the, the the house band for that was myself, Steve Murphy, Godfrey Townsend, and Manny Focarazzo. And we were also uh, the Alan Parsons live project. So the we got to back up all those guys in one show. And that was my introduction to Denny and Joey. And I my, my Beatles obsession that I'd been carrying around since I was a kid finally paid off vocationally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we could do a show just on on your work with all those musicians but, oh sure yeah but uh, yep. anyway our guest well, here is john montagna by the way what's, and, up, what's up beautiful people and um the reason that we are we're having him on the show is because he's going to be at the fest for beetle fans that he's doing a special presentation there concerning paul as a bass player 
And in particular, since this is the 50th anniversary of Abbey Road coming up, you're going to be talking primarily about his bass playing on that album, correct? That's correct. We're going to focus on the bass lines on Abbey Road, um, which, you know, besides the fact that it's the 50th anniversary of the album, uh, that's usually the record that I tell people uh, when I meet people that tell me, oh, my son just started playing bass. What should he do? And I said, get him a copy of Abbey Road mm. and just learn those bass lines. You know, it's 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 some of the best material to study. I mean, Paul's bass playing in general is like boot camp for learning about melody and structure and improvisation and 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 keeping the groove together but I'll, I'll get into that when we start that discussion okay i do want to talk in general about paul's bass playing not just on abbey road okay prior to that the solo music but um here on this show i just want to make sure that i do a quick apology because since our last show which was with ken mansfield we wanted to have that show out in time for the 50th anniversary of the beatles apple rooftop concert so we've missed the show for the last three weeks and in the course of those three weeks, we had the big news about the brand new Let It Be project, and we haven't had a chance to talk about it. And I'm sure that all of us, including John here, wants to uh, express their opinions about the news and uh, what we're hoping it will be, if we have any concerns about it. But uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, there will be a, a brand new project coming out uh, on the Get Back Let It Be sessions and Peter Jackson who's best known for being the director for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, has been uh, given the task of directing it. And he's been given 55 hours of film footage to go through and 140 hours of audio to go through. And um, in addition to that, I know that a lot of fans will be happy to know that in addition to this project, the original Let It Be film will also be coming out as a separate release. So um, Peter Jackson has made comments about what he has seen so far, and I guess heard Mm -hmm. so far. And uh, because of the fact that the film, the Let It Be film, is usually regarded in the context of showing the band's struggles at the time, Peter Jackson has said, and this is a quote from him, that he has a different view. He says, I was relieved to discover the reality is very different to the myth. After reviewing all the footage and audio that Michael Lindsay Hogg shot 18 months before they they broke up, it's simply an amazing historical treasure trove. Sure, there's moments of drama, but none of the discord this project has long been associated with. Watching John, Paul, George, and Ringo work together, creating now classic songs from scratch, is not only fascinating, it's funny, uplifting, and surprisingly intimate. And I also wanted to add to that, as one of our own listeners emailed us about this, that uh, Mark Lewison tweeted about this, and his comment in response to this was, The Beatles did it, and now I've done it. An exhausting but exhilarating month's work comes to an end. Finally, I know how it was, and how I've been wrong in all my past writings. We've all had it wrong. Roll on Peter Jackson's film and my volume three. <laughs> volume two as wow. it Mark, out. Mark <laughs> is referring to we, we should say that Mark's referring to what we mentioned when Ken Mansfield was here is that um, like a number of people he listened to all the let it be um, Nagras on the day on the 50th anniversary of each day in January so that he basically had 
fundamentally the experience of sitting there listening to the sessions, which he had apparently never done before. And and it is daunting. I, you know, I can't blame him. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. If you could just um clarify something for me, Ken. You said how many hours of video and how many hours of audio? Fifty five hours of film footage, a hundred forty hours of audio. Fifty five hours does not seem like a lot for does it? For a film? For film, yeah. Mm. Was he given everything that exists and there was only 55 hours worth? Mm, that I don't right. know. That's, that's a good point. I mean, over the course of a basically what, like a month? Just yeah, under a month? Chop some of the maybe dead time out of there. So maybe it was three weeks of, uh, unless they were only playing for a couple of hours every okay, day. Okay, so let's call it 21 days, 55. That's just about two hours a day and we know that the cameras were running pretty much all day there's interviews there's like i've seen stuff on youtube of like you know it looks like the like endless takes of let it be over and over again like just the camera that's on john and he's like you know shifting yeah. positions the whole time he's sitting there with the bass i mean and and also i think that brings up an interesting point that there's more audio than there is film so there were moments in the studio where the cameras were not running and i would imagine that's later on when george came back and said like okay no film no concert let's just finish the record and they they like got down to work and and just went back and started cutting tracks in the studio the way they always did cameras probably weren't always running the whole time mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. yeah you know and that that brings up the point for me about this film being such a historical document i mean what I, I would love to see film of them cutting the master take to don't let me down or something you, you know like the whatever whatever the tracks were that they were cutting in the, that they wound up going back into the studio and cutting like do they uh, is there footage of them playing you know you know doing don't let me down in the studio for example and and did they were the cameras rolling when they caught the master take of that right you know hmm I think what's a, a major concern with most people is that if you look at this time as being a depressing time for the Beatles in the studio, and I have no doubt that there was some depressing times and there were joyous times at the same time, you know, is this going to be what some people might view as revisionism? Because if you watch the uh, Let It Be film, you know, I mean, that's yeah. that's that's. I have, well, I have something concern. to say about it, that. It's, it's the I same mean, thing that we talked about with the. I White think album. we all do. <laughs> yeah, you go well, first I mean, though. People are people are taking the ninety minutes that Michael Lindsay Hogg edited and presented as his version of the let it be film as suddenly the actual gospel truth of the universe it's 90 minutes of the let it be sessions mm -hmm. and it's coming out separately anyway so i don't know you listen to those you listen to those nagra outtakes and it is not all depressing i mean mm. some of it is boring you know if you <laughs> if you've never if you've never been in a band and never sat there from the beginning when someone's calling out the chords and everyone gets it under their fingers, yeah, you you might find that a little bit dull and people may be surprised by that as if, you know, everyone seems to have believed, I guess, that Beatles songs sprung full blown from the four of them. But, you know, I, I'm not really worried about the revisionism thing. I think, you know, the, I, I, 
the bootlegs and the, the Nagra tapes have shown us for years and years that there was some great stuff happening and a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And Peter Jackson's going to show us that side of it. Yeah. If you want to see the depressing one, it's coming out again. You know? Right. <laughs> so. I think that that's a very that you're you're spot on about that because okay, let's not forget that you, you say the word revisionism. This film, by definition was sort of less than 100% honest as a as a Beatles product. Let's not forget this started out as a as a television documentary mm-hmm. about preparing for a live concert. And it's January. I don't know, I don't know how many of you have ever been to England in the winter. But I spent Christmas in England in 2014 and it was so cold I thought I was going to die. So <laughs> being in a in an empty film studio in January, like right after Christmas, White Album is fresh in the shops, and Paul's like, "Come on, let's go, let's let's do some more stuff." And you know, you you know, nobody wanted to be there. Everybody looks pale, and it, and and you know, so I I've always felt that that the whole project to begin with was a little rushed and a little uneven i mean paul we know we know we love him but he's we, he's a workaholic i mean i don't know if you how many of you've got the red rose speedway uh box set yeah we reviewed okay. it here. inside did you see inside the book there's like a to-do list yeah. for like uh-huh. when the tour when the tour ends tour ends august 31st finish album do cover rehearse for tour back out on the road i mean he's just he's unstoppable right so it was definitely an uneven project to begin with. And then when they finally, they had to finish it because, um, I mean, I, I'm telling a story that everybody knows already. Uh, Ringo had to go work on the magic Christian. They had to finish the thing. And then it sat in the can. And that's when Alan Klein got his hands on it and blew it up from 16 mil to 35 to turn it into a feature film so that they could make more money off of it. So by the time it hit the theaters, it was already, the intention behind it had already sort of gotten lost in the shuffle. So who knows whose perspective they were trying to push here? You know, I've never been one of those fans clamoring for a re-release. How come they won't re-release? Let it be because it's, it, it, it looks terrible. It's edited badly. The audio's out of sync half the time. And, uh, you know, John's talked about wanting to, you know, you know, look, this is us with our trousers off. Can we end the myth now or whatever, whatever the famous quote was? I can mm-hmm. see why why Paul and Ringo didn't want to revisit it all these years. I think it's great that someone impartial like Peter Jackson is going to rifle through everything like a historical document like he did with his World War One thing. And my only concerns are, like you say, the revisionism. I hope that they don't gloss over John and Yoko's uh, heroin situation at that time. I think that had a lot to do with his productivity or lack thereof, his enthusiasm for the project or lack thereof, Paul struggling to kind of keep the thing going. I hope that they don't, I mean, it's, it's, it's great that the, that the myth is not what the reality was. And it's great that there was more positivity and than, than what people are saying, but I, I just hope that they tell the full story you know good and bad and that it gives the complete picture but of course we all know that no matter what comes out there's going to be people who are dissatisfied 
Sure. And is let's, it possible, let's hope for the best. Is it possible to give you the complete picture in a two-hour or less film? Right. That's yeah. true. That's, the people are yeah. going to be saying they've whitewashed it. It's back in sync. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as grainy as I remember it being on my on my bootleg, you know, VHS dubbed off of the laserdisc copy that I've been watching my whole life. You know, <laughs> it's interesting that we're now finding out that there was more positivity that took place during that month, and that echoes what Giles Martin was saying just months ago. When the White Album, the uh, 50th anniversary edition was out, that he was saying, you know, they've always painted these sessions as being so bleak and the beginning of the end of the Beatles. But there was nothing but joy to my ears in going through all of these session tapes. And I think we've here on this show have kind of figured, you know, there's probably a middle ground here from what Giles Hmm. heard to what was going on when the tapes weren't rolling. That, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all these years later, all of a sudden we're hearing that the White Album session positive. Um, <laughs> so now, yeah. now the, are they going to the difference? Saying, but the Let It Be sessions, the Get Back sessions weren't all that bad after all. Uh, well, the difference is that um, with the White Album, Giles could only hear what was going on when the tapes were rolling. And on right, the Let It right. Be sessions, they were rolling the whole time. You know, so there's going to be more fights on the Let It Be sessions. But there's also, I mean, I don't know. You've listened to the bootlegs. There's some hilarious stuff. I mean, I hope they um, I hope they include John's disquisition on Baden Powell. Yeah. (laughs) Look, I've been in so many bands in I don't know how many decades of playing the bass. And there are times within one tour, within one week of one tour where you're like, rolling on the floor laughing together and then the next day you're you're at each other's throats at a sound check over you know whatever it is none of us will ever know what it was like for those four guys to be in that band at that time with apple hemorrhaging money with all the management and all the business stuff going on around them and now yep. here they are like in this like cavernous like empty film studio with cameras rolling and and uh you know, as was John's description of like people filming you in colored lights and it's cold and it's empty and and we're, they're trying to like turn, uh, you know, turn straw into into gold here because there's a there's a there's a live show. Their first live show in th- in three years is I believe they already they was booked. Right. They booked the show, didn't they? They booked the night at the roundhouse or something, didn't they? There was no, a I don't think they, ever, they never did settle on exactly what they were going to do. OK, well, I think there was the, the 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 pressure of going from like only having been a studio unit to suddenly they're going to have to do this big concert of all new songs and have and film the whole process. I mean, again, none of us will ever know what it was like for those guys to, to, to be in that band and, the, and that that kind of pressure and, and the strain of now Yoko's there. And, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm sure, yes, there were there were it wasn't as bad as it's been made out to be for the last 50 years. But I, I also don't think there's going to be any way to whitewash George walking out for two days. Mm-hmm. Right. And that kind of stuff. So hopefully Peter Jackson will tell a balanced story that shows the full spectrum of of the experience but you know look we're all students of the history there's books that have come out that said that john lennon was the happiest he'd ever been from 75 to 80 when he was a house husband and there are books that say that he wanted to jump out a window every day of those five years so who do you believe 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I've been a stay at home dad, too. And I can tell you that all of those things happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I, I think the, the issue of, of this revisionist history issue is a touchy one because everyone's perception is is different, you know, and we'll see what what tale the tapes tell and, and, and what the film tells. And hopefully Peter Jackson will, you know, I, I just think it's really hysterical that they had to get the guy that did Lord of the Rings to go through. <laughs> to go, yeah, go I think through you know, with, with a little bit of a little bit of CGI, he can have Magic Alex done up as Gollum. <laughs> he can Magic Alex's mixing board will actually work in this one. <laughs> no, I don't. I just thought of something. I, I don't mean to get ahead here because I know we're yeah. going to probably briefly talk about now the uh, the Egypt Station item that was announced also. But it would be interesting if they did a sort of real mega deluxe set where you can get your own personal hologram of Magic Alex in the <laughs> Let It Be box set. The Let It I Be think, box I, set uh, coming out in the spring of 2020. We'll have your own personal Magic Alex. As um, Gollum. <laughs> that would be great. Maybe a box th- set of inventions from Magic Alex that never worked. <laughs> I, th- I think they're going to do a special, like, super duper duper deluxe edition where Paul and Ringo actually step off the UPS truck themselves <laughs> and deliver it to you with <laughs> with with uh, beans on toast. That's it. And cool. uh, you know, and then th- and then then we'll see how the uh, social media people complain about that. Well. Yeah, well, they were they they were stuck in traffic. They were fifteen minutes late. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a couple of things I just wanted to bring up about this this new project, the Let It Be one, and that is that um, it's really tough when you're a fan all these years when you've been given a certain narrative for fifty years of this is how right. Let It Be was. It's so hardened in people's opinion that a lot of people may not believe that there was this other side to the Let It Be sessions but at the same time what i always like to say is the camera doesn't lie that's right what you see in front of you is the way that it was and there are times when the audio may not be enough because you can listen to a band that sounds like they're having a horrible time going through a song but they could be smiling through the whole thing and you never know that's right you know but the camera's got everything so i'm happy to see any footage that i've never seen before and any mm-hmm. side of this project, any side of the Let It Be sessions that I've never seen or what may be the, the happier side of it all, I welcome. But the only problem is how you tilt it. You know, is it going to be far more positive than negative? And will that be believable? And then should we even question that? I think you have to assume that Peter Jackson knows the the minefield that he's stepping into here, mm. that people... Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, I'm 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 sure that all of the people surrounding this project and any Beatles project know that we've got this people like us who've got every book ever written that have been studying the history like like chapter and verse for 50 years, and we're very emotional about this kind of stuff. And they they I think he's he's got to know what he's walking into, sure. and. You know, I haven't seen the World War One film that he did on, but I'm really curious too. And I, I, but I've heard it's it's like it's like walking into a time machine. What he did with the with the picture quality and it, and it's an and it's an also an incredible story. Mm-hmm, but yeah. look, I think as Beatles fans, as for people like us, there was a point where all of a sudden we were told that the American albums weren't correct. Oh, you're listening to the American Rubber Soul and Stereo? No, 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 no. 
It's mono, and it's the English version. Otherwise, it's not what the band intended. And I'm like, so you're gonna you're gonna tell me that my sense memories that I've had since I was a kid are are somehow invalid? I've got to pretend that that never existed, mm-hmm. you know. So this has been this has been going on like every every generation. There seems to be a new layer to the story. It's like, oh, now suddenly we have to believe this, you know. And I I I think it gets touchy when everybody has an opinion online mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. I think Peter Jackson's uh, gonna gonna tell a, a, a balanced uh, account of the history. I hope so. Anyway. Okay. Any final thoughts on this, guys? Guess uh, not. No, not. Okay. I think not, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> the silence was deafening. <laughs> All right. Let's just move on. Uh, the other major news item, and there's so many of them, but we have to just narrow it down to this and the brand new traveling edition of Egypt Station, which is coming out May the 10th. I'm sure just about everybody who listens to this show knows about it. It's got all kinds of goodies involved. Uh, I'll just run down real quickly what it has. Limited edition black double vinyl, 180 gram. Exclusive limited edition night blue, 180 gram vinyl of Egypt Station 2 with unreleased songs. One's called Frank Sinatra's Party. Curious to hear that. Uh, 62nd Street. And there's an extended version of Who Cares and four live performances. One from each of the following shows that Paul did. One from Abbey Road. One from the Cavern Club, one from Lippa, and one from Grand Central Station. There's a limited edition concertina CD for Egypt Station. Exclusive limited edition Egypt Station on blue cassette. HD audio of all tracks upon shipment and additional rare performance footage inside. Then, in addition to all that, a few more things. Uh, Luxury vintage style embossed Egypt Station artwork suitcase. An exclusive copy of a handwritten note from Paul. Fold-out vintage-style Egypt Station illustrated map suitable for framing. Travel memorabilia, including travel itinerary, postcards, baggage tickets, and a first-class ticket. Luggage stickers. A travel (laughs) journal featuring copies of Paul's handwritten lyrics. Two Egypt Station lithographs of Paul's paintings. A 500-piece jigsaw puzzle and playing cards, plus additional hidden surprises and rarities. There, there you go. There you have it. It is going to come with a little bag of pot to recognize the 40th anniversary of <laughs> Paul's <laughs> arrival. That's is, the, is, the, is there a pot-only edition where you can just buy? <laughs> the- <laughs> but then the question is, if you know, if, if, if this is collectible pot, do you smoke it or do you keep right, it? Right, <laughs> That's right. why you got to order Alan two of them, two sets. Yeah, yeah right. right. One bag of pot just keeps sealed, and the other to smoke. Oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> and how much is this all going for, Ken? I'm, I'm on, I'm on the Paul McCartney website right now, and I'm not seeing a price tag. It's, I think it's like four hundred bucks with with shipping. Yeah. three hundred. Well, it's 360 plus shipping charges which amounts to over 400 dollars yeah yeah (laughs) well i mean you know i ordered it i think my reaction though to ordering it was a little bit that i got i didn't get the um the uh the wing 71 to 73 box set that had both You know, and I react reacting to not getting that. I jumped on this and then maybe looked a little closer to what was in there (laughs) after I committed. And while I'm happy I got it, 
I'm still thinking, yeah, but I bought Pink Floyd box sets that had marbles in them. Right. So this isn't quite down to marbles. So for those who don't know, the when Floyd's the last time Pink Floyd's catalog got reissued, the Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, and The Wall got you know super deluxe editions, box sets, and besides all the extra goodies, you did get marbles and I think a scarf each one. Yeah. Uh, so you could play marbles, which you you would put the wall scarf on and play with your wall marbles while listening to uh, uh, all of the demos that were unreleased. So, but here we're not getting all the demos that were unreleased. We're getting like three new tracks plus a bunch of live tracks that we already have because Mm -hmm. they've been out there, you know, all this time. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, and and I should say having actually bought this set, so I'm including me in this thing. I suspect that the deck of cards is because if you've bought this set, you're probably spending a lot of time playing solitaire on your own. You know? <laughs> but, <laughs> the puzzle, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. yeah. I just, my, when I see things like this, my question is whose idea was this? I mean, I think most you, fans think that it's Paul. I, you know what? Look, his albums have always been like an adventure. I mean, you know, Venus and Mars, you open up Venus and Mars and there's like a gatefold, there's stuff on the, in all, all of his albums, you know, all the Wings albums came with like a poster and stuff on the inner sleeve. My bu- buddy of mine and I have a, a theory that Sergeant Pepper was basically the template for the McCartney solo uh, catalog, you mm. know, uh, musically in, in the sense that like anything and everything could happen. And the whole thing with like the fold out cover and the inserts and all the bonus, you know, value for your money. You know, I think that was I think it was Robert Christgau, who's a writer, said was talking about this. And he said, like, you get the impression that if that that, that Paul himself is going to come jumping out of the LP cover and yell, boo, you know. (laughs) So he's always there's always been a a sense of that with, with his albums, you know, press to play, having like the drawings inside of like the stereo picture thing. I thought that was Uh, cool. I loved that when that yeah. came out because yeah. I, I was just getting into recording in those days and moving stuff in stereo. So like, you know, seeing that he did that too was really cool. I just don't know that I need, I mean, I'm, I'm 47 years old. I don't know that I'm going to, th- that I need an Egypt station jigsaw puzzle at this particular time in my life, mm-hmm. you know, especially if it's a collectible thing and you feel like if it's a collectible, you want to leave it sealed and all that kind of stuff. You know, I wonder, I just wonder who they're making this thing for, which is why I don't mind that it's, you know, look, it's three, it's, there's 3000 of them. I'm sure there's, there's 3000 super fans like yourself that are going to be like, yeah, you know what? This would be cool to have, but it, it wasn't the kind of thing where I felt like, Oh my God, I got to go get that out. Now when the red Rose speedway box was announced, I couldn't wait for that thing. I got it for Christmas and I was thrilled just because I've been, I love that record Been wanting to hear the, the second album of stuff that wasn't released, I, you know, and the book, I love all the hardcover books in the, in the, uh, the archive mm-hmm. editions. Yeah. I just don't see this as, as, as being an essential item, but I'm also not mad at him for it either, you mm-hmm. know, because I, I think there is a, you know, the way the record industry is going right now, you got to do interesting unusual stuff to keep people's attention. And this album, 
I mean, he went all out with the whole carpool karaoke and the 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 pop up gig in Grand Central Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the fact that he's always thinking outside the box. It's one of the things that I love about him more and more as I get older. Is the he's always looking ahead and thinking of like what what can I do that hasn't been done before? What's unusual? You know what I mean? So this package is absolutely you know it's like I said in, inessential. But if someone got it for me as a gift, I'd be very happy. But I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna spend the rent money on it myself. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Yeah, I can pretty much echo John's words there. As, <laughs> as as for myself, um, I've never been one of those people that feels I have to have everything. I care mainly about the music. That's the most important thing. I have to have every yeah. song that the Beatles have done, group or solo. If it's an unreleased B-side or a bonus track on a CD single, I got to have all that. I don't mm. care about a jigsaw puzzle. I don't mm. care about playing cards. I don't care about all this. I'm sure it's a very nice package. What would concern mm-hmm. me is if the only way that you can get these unreleased songs is on here. Because we haven't been told yet, there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not there will be a deluxe version with, I believe Paul said he had 27 songs that he did for wow. this album. So if you put out a double CD with all the songs, I would eat that up. I'd be grabbing it the first day. Right. That kind of thing. That's what I was expecting this to be when they announced, you know, that there'd be a, a, you know, a special thing. I kind of was waiting for all those extra tracks, you know, that that were dangled in front of us when the original album came out. Well, he's he's always had like twice as much stuff. Sure. The hopper is what as what he lets out. He's like Prince. I mean, he's just he's just recording constantly. I mean, think of all the. There's a whole album, Return to Pepperland, right? Wasn't there an entire oh, album yeah. in the 80s that didn't get released? Uh-huh. Red Rose Speedway, there was like twice as, it was supposed, Red Rose Speedway was supposed to be a double album. Mm-hmm. And then they cut it in half and those tracks got held up and either were B-sides or they're put out years later. You know, there's all kinds of unreleased stuff in the vaults that, right. uh, you know, I, I, I would love to see a, a collection of, of all those kinds of things, uh, you know, B, you know, B sides and Europe only B sides, you know, the guy's mm-hmm. just got so much stuff that, you know, that, that will, that he'll sort of like let out in like little drips and drabs here and there as, as, as B sides or as bonus cuts or whatever from that period. And if he's really got like another, you know, albums worth of stuff from last year sitting in the can, I mean, it's up to him whether he wants to put that out or not. Yeah, true. Well, we're always joking yeah. about you know anniversary editions. Maybe the tenth anniversary, it'll all come out. But yeah. uh, I just think he's going to sprinkle everything on all these remastered box sets. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. instead of putting out one great big colossal unreleased songs package, which I think is what we'd all love to to have all at once. But yeah. you're going to have to buy everything through all the remastered albums. Right. But I think the the other thing here that uh, is, I remember reading an article years ago. They interviewed Neil Aspinall uh, in some trade publication. I forget which one it was. And one of the key things he was talking about about the success of Apple, I think it was around the, the around the time of the anthology, and they were trying to figure out why this band that hasn't been a functioning unit for twenty odd years is the top selling entity in the industry Mm -hmm. and one of the keys to their success was that they didn't saturate the market that they spaced out the releases 
you know, with enough room in between them so that people didn't get tired of it. You know, they would, there was enough, they, they would let just a little bit of stuff out uh, and they would wait long enough to create the demand. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think he's, sure. he's, he's conscious of that as well. I mean, he's, he's the master of that as far as I'm concerned. Right. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> One last thing before we get to our main topic. Let us not forget, as we're doing this show on February 18th, send out happy birthday wishes to Yoko, who's yeah. 86 today. God bless her. Oh, my her. God. Right. Yes. Yep. Happy birthday, Yoko. Happy and birthday, they Yoko. announced we, the we reissue you. of the wedding album today. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> nice. You know, happy birthday, Yoko. Doesn't now, come with a jigsaw album. puzzle. <laughs> is it now? Is it is it the uh, the original wedding album with like the photos and the slice of wedding cake and all it's that kind of stuff? To be. That's what I read. I think, I think the, so. Yeah, I think the vinyl will have that, and and it will be CD, white vinyl. Be a, I'm sorry, Alan. The CD is going to be, I think, just a basic, you know, the audio and maybe I guess a booklet, but this vinyl I think is going to be a replica of the package from '69. Mm-hmm. Then when they put out the t- the two virgins deluxe box set. It'll have a uh, a, a jigsaw puzzle of the album. <laughs> oh, oh God! God. <laughs> Sorry, but anyway, happy birthday, Yoko. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so let's get to our main <laughs> topic here, which is about Paul as a bass player, and in particular about the Abbey Road album. But I would like to just talk about the very beginning in these years of, of the Beatles. What made Paul? What was his bass playing like early on? In the sense mm. of, did he, what did he do differently as a bass player compared to other bass players of that time? Okay. Well, you have to remember, to the best of our knowledge, Paul started playing the bass in 1961. Is that when Stu Sutcliffe quit the band? Well, and so, 60, 61. Okay. Yeah. What makes Paul such an interesting bass player? One of the one of the things that you got you got to remember that first of all the bass guitar had only been in existence for about 10 years at that point leo fender was the first manufacturer to successfully develop and mass produce an electric bass guitar to take the eadg let me turn on my volume of the the eadg of the double bass and put that onto a guitar body other Companies had tried to electrify a double bass. Leo Fender was the first one to successfully manufacture a a bass guitar, the Fender Precision Bass. That was in 1951. So to begin with, the instrument has only been around for about a decade. Rock and roll, a lot of rock and roll was still double bass. All those early Sun Records with Elvis Presley, Bill Black's playing a double bass. Mm -hmm. So there was no vocabulary on the bass guitar yet in rock and roll it wasn't like now where you want to play rock bass there's like dozens of books on how to play rock bass and youtube videos on how to you know learn the bass line from here so there was none of that so paul was learning there was no formal pedagogy is that the word i'm looking for there was no vocabulary on the bass guitar for rock and roll the other thing that makes paul interesting is a, the paul's bass playing interesting is that he became the bass player for the Beatles. It wasn't like he got a bass and was learning how to play it and then joined this band. He was he was learning the bass for the gig that he was already in, mm-hmm. right? For 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 a band that he was already in. So it was he had a very utilitarian approach to it. It was a it, it was he 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 started playing bass out of necessity. 
right, and not right. and not for any other reason, uh, for the band that he was already in. So whatever he was going to learn how to do was going to be within the context of that band and their repertoire and their vibe and the and the 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 pocket that they were trying to lay down. Paul belongs to what I refer to my my personal Mount Rushmore of rock bass is McCartney, John Entwistle, Jack Bruce, and John Paul Jones. Mm. Those four those four guys to me are are the guys who basically invented the vocabulary of rock bass guitar that is still being used today. All four of those guys came to the bass guitar not as their first instrument. Ant Whistle was a brass player. Jack Bruce was a cellist. John Paul Jones was a keyboard player. They all came to the bass guitar after having played other instruments. They also learned how to play the instrument primarily within the groups that they were in. So they, they were gigging right away. Jack was already working as a double bassist in, in, in England, got a bass guitar and was doing sessions on it immediately. There was no template, no influences. There was no, you know, who, you know, who do you like as a bass player? There was really nobody to copy. There were no licks to, to steal. So he was, so Paul was kind of just making it up as he went along. They're in Hamburg. Somebody had to play the bass and Paul went for it and got the Hofner because a, it was symmetrical as, as again, to as, as much as we know, because no one has sat down with Paul for an in-depth bass centric interview yet. Although I'd like to one day, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> as far as we know, I mean, we've heard, we've heard stories that he bought the Hofner because it was cheap, but I've also heard that that, that, that instrument was that he actually had to do like a layaway plan because it was kind of pricey. Uh, but also because it was symmetrical and he could turn it over left-handed. So, but, you know, Paul playing the bass in a, in, a, in a sort of group that was already set up, you know, it was very utilitarian in the beginning. You've, you've heard the recordings, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you uh, so it was only later. I mean, again, if all Paul ever did was write those songs, if all he ever was, was a songwriter, his place in the rock and roll hall of fame would be, complete this is one of the greatest melodic writers of of his time right so it's inevitable that this guy's creativity his natural creativity and his natural flair for melodicism is going to come out so in the beginning he's basically holding it together he's you know laying down the root of the chords last night i said these words to you know, pretty solid, just solid holding it together. And he he's instinctively musical, like the guy's made out of music. So he knows that he that, you know, I, I think there's there are certain things you can hear in the early recordings where you can tell that he's taking advantage of like the sustain, the attack and the decay and the sustain, and the release like Anna is one that comes to mind. You know, the first note is, is long and the second one is short. Anna. You know, you've got a lot of power as a bass player to dictate not just the the harmonic structure of the music, because the chord's not a chord till it has a bass note. Were other but bass players doing that though? That also, is a good question. I don't I mean I, I think the bass, you know, he McCartney has said the bass player was the fat guy in the back. Nobody wanted to, to do that gig. <laughs> yeah. Right? I don't know about in rock and roll, how conscious it was. You'd ha- I mean, I, I, you'd have to talk to somebody like Bill Wyman 
or whoever. What about the the, the Motown guys? What about the Motown guys? The I Motown think he, guys he revered were, those. Yeah, well, the Motown guys were jazz musicians. Mm. Those guys in Detroit, James Jamerson and Benny Benjamin and Earl Van Dyke. Those guys were they were Detroit jazz musicians. And word got out that there was this guy that's starting a record label and he's looking for a house band to cut these sessions. Those records were cut in an afternoon because jazz is all about improvisation, right? You've got a, a, mm -hmm. a, 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 a structure, a set of chord changes, and that's it. And within an hour, these guys could look at like, you know, C, F, D minor, G and make music out of it just by listening to each other and vibing off of each other and trying to come up with a groove that works. I don't know what was going on in Paul's head at that time, but but listening to the to the recordings then, you know, the, the early stuff he's holding it together, but occasionally there's a there's a few little licks that come out. Like one of my favorites, make sure I'm not distorting here. One of my favorites is on um Roll over Beethoven, right? He's like, gotta roll a little bit, gonna mail it to my local DJ. It's your basic root three five that that all the bass players were doing. And in the bridge, he does this lick that I just absolutely love. And if you feel it like it, get your lover and reel it, rock it. That little thing. <laughs> you know, you, you you can start to hear him have a little fun with this thing. But he's, you know, he's very concerned with doing the job and keeping it solid, locking in with Pete Best and then, and then later on with, with Ringo. I, I don't know that he's consciously thinking like, hmm, what else can I do here until later? And that's when the Motown influence happened. That's when the Brian Wilson influence happened. But, you know, early on, I think he was just doing his job of, 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 gluing it together and, and keeping the groove happening because they were still playing dance halls and stuff. So it was all about the, the groove and the beat and keeping people on the dance floor there. You know what I mean? What, what about, um, I, I, for me, one of his sort of breakout early tracks as an inventive bassist is all my loving where it's, mm -hmm. it's really almost a line of counterpoint, you know, it's, it's not your yeah. standard, you know, do, 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 it's, right. it's a totally well, different. Well, again, you're dealing with a different kind of songwriting talent as well. Mm -hmm. You know, close your eyes and I'll get you. I mean, it's. I mean, these are those are pretty heavy chord changes to dance around. Yeah. Um, I'm and glad sing. you played that. I love that. Thanks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. Well, I, I used to sub uh, with a, a tribute band here in New York called Strawberry Fields, and that was the opening song. So I'd have the wig the boots, the suit, the whole bit. And as long as I could go, close your eyes and I'll keep... Once I did that, then I was okay. I could start the show, you know? And it's, it is a, it's the other, the other thing that doing that gig has really made me appreciate Paul as a bass player and as an entertainer as well. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to play in a Beatles tribute band that does the full costume bit. It is physically demanding. It is like a physical effort to stand up straight and play those bass lines and sing in that register with a big smile on your face the whole time. Right. It's in the boots. I mean, it's it's I, how he still does that now at 76 or whatever is, you know, it's it's a lot harder than it looks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so but um, the, the other thing that I noticed, you know, uh, putting this um, 
presentation together for the fest, going down the list of the uh, of the songs. You know, he seems to do. You know, to- talking about him as a, as a bassist versus being a, a songwriter, and how a lot of those the the he's using the same skill set writing melodies as he is writing bass lines. I mean, it's starting to in- infect the bass lines. He seems to do his best. I mean, best. I mean, it's a relative. You know, it's a matter of opinion, but. Some of his most interesting bass lines tend to be on John's songs and George's songs when he's not the songwriter, mm-hmm. when he's just the bass player. He's admitted this. Oh, has he? Yeah, because okay. all he had to do was concentrate on the bass part then. Right, right. And I, I would imagine, you know, him being founding members of the band and, um, uh, you know, he's going to get his own rocks off in there somewhere. You know what I mean? Hmm. But uh, if you think of everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey, Dane Alive, Dear Prudence. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Taxman, Old Brown Shoe. Uh, Old Brown Shoe was George. Really? Yeah. I but... better take that off my list for the, uh, <laughs> for the you know, it's funny presentation. It's funny you, you, you react like that because I actually only maybe the last couple of years realized that that was George playing. Really uh, okay. on old brown shoe and and I always thought wow that was great that's a yeah. great baseline uh, so and it was George piano on that? Is, is Paul playing piano on that uh yes okay yeah George admitted this in uh, Cream magazine I think it was around uh, the time of Cloud Nine and up until then I never knew that that was okay George. that's a rather that's lively the... baseline oh yeah and didn't George once at some point pass a comment about Paul being sometimes a little too busy of a bass player or John uh, did well on something on the song, something I think George said to Paul that your bass line's too busy <laughs> and it's such a great bass line. That's one of the, uh, one of the key bass lines of all time. Mm-hmm. To, as far as I'm concerned, that's a line that you could play as a melody. You could give that mm-hmm. bass line to an alto sax and it would, yeah. and it would be an, an engaging melody i mean there's a lot of space in that song and if i were mccartney i'd want to fill it with <laughs> with, <laughs> with with something as, yeah. as as it were but um you know it's i mean look you know um I mean, it's, he's, he's doing everything that a bass line is supposed to do. He's outlining the changes. But, of course, they don't want to leave me now. I mean, he's doing the job. I mean, he's he's outlining the changes. He's keeping the groove together. I mean, that I mean, he and Ringo together are, like, really, like, stretching the taffy on that thing. <laughs> um, but... Um, the thing I love is on on the bridge when it's a. I mean, again, you've got all this control as a bass player to to shift the melody around as well with how you know how how long you hold the note if it's a if you you know these eighth notes are going to do something different than than these you know what I mean and he just seems to have an instinctive grasp of this. I don't know that he, that he had any sort of formal training, anyone telling him like, Oh, you know what? On this section, make it more staccato. 
I think it was, it just seems like it was purely instinctual mm-hmm. on his part. I think so. Um, too. But again, he was blessed with the rhythm section partners of not just Ringo on drums, but John Lennon, one of the most underrated rhythm guitarists. I mean, a track like Can't Buy Me Love, Lennon's acoustic guitar on that track i mean that's the drums on that track is 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 john you know his rhythm guitar mixed with the bass and the drums made it was just such an amazing rhythm section and that's you know you you can play a busy bass line all you want but if your partners in the rhythm section aren't there to catch you the 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 bottom's going to fall out you know what i mean and so you need you need that kind of trust you know you got to know that ringo's going to hit that two and four exactly where it needs to be there's a moment during the guitar solo on something right ringo does these like he does like these these rolls on the toms that Anyone else, it would have just fallen apart. But like the rest of the band is like, the rest of the band has got his back. They're supporting him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. when you examine Paul's bass playing, you can't help but examine the context that his bass playing was happening in, which was that band, which was you know surrounded by Ringo and John and George as a full rhythm section. So it's not just enough to play a busy bass line. You've got to, you've got to make it fit. And that was his genius too. And, and still is, is doing something that's cool and melodic and, and all that, but maintaining an effective partnership with the rest of the band, you know, reining it in so that there's, there's still a foundation there. Mm-hmm. John, I have a question about, uh, going back to the early days, okay. uh, about, Paul was one of the guitarists in the Beatles when in the earliest days when Stu Sutcliffe was was in the band. Uh, when he switched to bass, how did his guitar playing feed what he did on the bass? And is that what we're hearing uh, in a song like I Saw Her Standing There, which was the earliest bass part that really caught my eye of all of the early songs? That's a good question. I mean, I think... Pretty much from the beginning, he was playing with a pick. And that was not, I mean, the, be, being that the stand-up was still a, 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 still a fixture in, in music, you're not playing that instrument with a pick. Right. That was another, I guess, a holdover from him being a guitarist first. I, my educated guess is, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you'd again, someone would have to speak to him about that. But... Uh, if if you look at, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think of um, like an early rock rock and roll tune that's that's got a double bass on it. Maybe like like on "Don't Be Cruel," that, you know that you would do finger style. I'm pretty sure he went with a pick from the from the beginning, and I think it must have informed his technique and his approach. Because again, there was there you know there was no rock bass guitar methodology in existence yet mm-hmm. you know so you know i mean the, the the jazz community was really slow to embrace the bass guitar there was i mean up i mean i, I went to berkeley in the 90s and there were jazzers who thought like well if you're not playing upright it's not a real instrument right. still <laughs> you know so although <laughs> one of the first prototype precision basses leo fender 
uh, manufactured, he brought to the Lionel Hampton band and Lionel, I mean, the, the, you know, Lionel Hampton's big band was on the road, you know, 10 months a year or whatever it was. So he brings it to Lionel Hampton and Lionel Hampton is like, this is great. Now we don't have to cart the giant bull fiddle around. That's going to cut our cartage bill by whatever, 10% or whatever. So he gives it to his bassist who was like, I mean, I ain't playing that. That's a, it's not a real bass. And they were like, no, this is, this is the bass now. And after like two nights, the guy, I forget the guy, I forget the bass player's name. Oh, geez. I, um, anyway, he was like, you know what? This is great. I can play sitting down. I can hear myself more. It's, you know, the, the notes are ringing out. So it was, I would have to trace the evolution of the bass guitar in rock and roll a little bit more to see who, who else was doing it. I mean, uh, Bill Wyman and the Stones, but there were just as many, uh, you know, rock and roll bands that were still playing upright. So I, I would have to think that the guitar, you know, him coming from the guitar would have had to have influenced him. I mean, you know, all the films we see of him in those days, he's playing with a pick. There's definitely a guitar type of approach. And there are also some things that he probably stole from his own guitar playing days. Like Darren mentioned, I saw her standing there. I, I think the baseline to that is identical to Chuck Berry's Talking About You, yeah, which right. was in their, in and their repertory. Think, and, I think, and I think Paul actually yeah. admitted to that. Yep. Yeah. But I, I mean, there's, you know, when I, I remember when I started playing bass, when I noticed how many songs, how many songs are like root five, root three, five. You know, I mean, there's a couple of, there's a handful of patterns that get used like over and over again, you know, so that doesn't surprise me. But again, him being one of the songwriters, one of the primary songwriters, once he and John started writing all the time, and now he's thinking in terms of outlining the harmonic structure of the song uh, and not just playing like rock and roll patterns. You know, I, I I think it was a combination of a lot of things coming together at once. And again, the fact that he was in the band right away, it wasn't like he got the bass and like spent a few months in the woodshed getting good until he was ready to go out and play a gig. It's like, go to the store, buy the bass, bring it to the gig that night and bam, you're on, you know, you're on the job. So it was on the job training for him as well. You know, talking about the Abbey Road album, when he did the Abbey Road album, when he did the bass line on something, when he did the bass line on I Want You, She's So Heavy. He'd been playing the bass for eight years. You know what I mean? That that just blew my mind when I, when I figured that out. That here's a guy that's been playing the instrument for eight years. And he's doing some of the most inventive stuff that we're still, that bass players today are still trying to figure out. Mm, those mm. those bass licks on that song, I want you. She's so heavy. Really make yeah. the song. Yeah. Well, again, again, a, a John song. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and just you know, he's reinforcing John's rhythm guitar. I mean, all the. I found some isolated tracks from Abbey Road online, which, as you know, they're v those are very difficult to find. You know, it takes several seconds of googling isolated Abbey Road tracks, and bam, there they are. Right. <laughs> but like. He goes, I want you. He's playing double stops. He's playing a, like a like power chords on the bass uh, in that section. So I don't know who came up with that break in the middle, like, and then a space. I don't I don't know who said like, hey Paul, do a bass lick there. 
whose whose idea that was uh, conceptually. But um, you know, like you say, it's it's perfect. It just it gives me chills every time, and uh, I'm really looking forward to playing it at the fest. <laughs> John, um, yeah. the, the the Hopfner bass as a, as as an instrument at the time that Paul picked it up, its evolution was it a quality instrument? Was it a no. cheap instrument? Did no. it? Uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> well, the story oh. is that he got the Hopfner because it was the cheapest one that he could right. find. Unlike right. John and George, who who spent all their all kinds of money buying fancy American Rickenbackers and Gretches and stuff. Paul was always, you know, very, very cautious with a dollar and bought this cheap German instrument because they were in Germany. I've played real Hofners and they're, they're I mean, oops, excuse me. I'm, I'm not, as long as we're, I'll go on record as saying I'm, I'm not a tremendous Hofner fan. Apart from playing Beatles stuff, you know, they're not. A, 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 and this is true for a lot of bass guitars in those days, apart from Fender. Again, it was a new instrument and a lot of guitar manufacturers thought, well, we better make a bass. You know, we better have a, a bass guitar in our product line. And so they would just basically take their whatever guitar they had and, you know, put bass strings on it. And I think that was the Hofner deal as well. They're tricky to keep in tune. It's, it's a hollow body. They're fun to play. They're light. You know, this one, the one I'm playing now, this is actually a, a Carlo Robelli, which is a, it was a company, I think, that was that Sam Ash had might have had something to do with. I think it was like their in-house. Well, they, they were sold at Sam Ash anyway, Carlo Robelli. They, they, they make um, sort of cheap knockoffs of, of different instruments. This was this was two hundred dollars off the rack at Sam Ash in Brooklyn on Flatbush Avenue. Mm-hmm. And it's black. I'm describing because you can't see it. It's black with a mother of pearl uh, pick guard. Violin shaped. And it's a you know it's a violin bass. I've got flat wounds on it. So it does it does the trick in terms of demonstrating the Hofner stuff. The Hofners, I mean, there's people that love them. And there's collectors that know all the ins and outs about those instruments. I'm not a tremendous fan of of them myself, but I think the fact that the instrument was hollow accounts for a lot of the sustain. I can tell you that when you're when you're in a band on you know playing with a band on stage with 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 that instrument going through an amp, it resonates really easily. I just heard the isolated. Uh, track for get back by the way um the isolated bass track for get back is horrendously out of tune you wouldn't think it but it was like <laughs> i mean it's it's ridiculous you know but you don't notice it for some reason it just it just it just sounds funky but the hofner i mean again you'd have to you'd have to ask paul what he thinks of that i, I having played a lot of different basses including a, a, a hollow body violin bass, there is definitely, you know, I mean, playing the Beatles music with a violin bass definitely makes the difference just in terms of the sustain uh, and the, 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 the resonance of the thing. Um, you know, something like Please Please Me. You know, you, you need something that, that's going to sustain like that and be kind of woofy and uh, and and thick that way. When Paul moved off the Hofner, it was like in the late 60s, maybe the White Album, possibly Abbey Road, somewhere in there. 
They gave Where, him Rick. Did he Rick, have an instrument he went to? Yeah, the the Rickenbacker company gave him a bass. They gave him a, I believe it was a four thousand one, that I think he initially turned down. I think once once hard when Hard Day's Night came out and George was playing the Rickenbacker twelve string, I think the Rickenbacker company was you know met them in California, and they had a guitar for George and a bass for Paul, and Paul originally turned it down. And then took it, I think, like a year or two later. Again, what impact that had on him, you'd have to ask him or or draw your own conclusions by listening. There are a lot of tracks that there's some debate as to which bass he used. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are and people always ask me, is he using the Rickenbacker or the Hoffner on Abbey Road? Some people that are more knowledgeable about this stuff than I am have told me that. By the time he got the Rickenback, I mean, it was like st- pretty much everything in the studio, White Album, Abbey Road, after a certain point, w- was was Rickenbacker in the studio exclusively. But he's using the Hoffner in the um, in the Let It Be sessions, certainly on the, on the rooftop and on the um, you know in, in the in the film studio, and and in the and in the um, when they were in the basement at Savile Row. But um, I can tell you from my own experience, Rickenbackers, unlike Hoffners, which are light, made out of balsa wood. Rickenbackers are big and heavy. They weigh a ton. I did a Wings tribute many, many years ago, and I had to go to like a vocal coach and like take like one extra yoga class every week just to hold up a Rickenbacker and sing Jet in the original key. It was like it's yeah, it's 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 tough. So, but the Rickenbacker bass is you know it's heavy. It's a solid body. But again, you're talking about an uh, instrument that's got flat wound strings on it going through an amp, which is then mic'd. Uh, then the mic is going into a tube console. You know, so the, talking about McCartney's bass sound, the, the instrument is only part of it. You know, I've had some success playing Abbey Road and White Album tracks on the Rebelli, on the violin bass too, and it, it seems to work. So how, it, how the instrument affected him and again, in the 70s, in the late 70s, back to the egg era, Yamaha gave him a bass. Mm-hmm. Um, but he still sounds like Paul McCartney. You know what I mean? No matter what instrument you give that guy, there's photos of him from the band on the run sessions where he's playing a Fender jazz bass. But he, he always sounds like Paul McCartney, no matter which instrument you give him. So I don't get too involved in the, in the gear stuff. There, there, there are people... Like um, who's the guy that wrote the Beatles gear book? Andy uh, Babuik. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There's guys who have researched that to a T. I'm more concerned with his approach as a musician and what he what he did in terms of it. You know, I mean, I, I I say it all the time. He's one of the guys that basically invented the vocabulary of the bass guitar in rock and roll. And I feel like he's got. Again, you'd have to ask him this, but it sounds to me like he has like a macro view of the music. Like he he looks at the entire picture the way an orchestrator would, and he he puts his ba- he structures his bass lines in such a way that yeah, they're cool and funky. There's a lot of notes and they're busy and they're and they're exciting, but they also have to fit within the picture of the music. They 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 stand out enough to grab your attention, but it also has to support the song. You know, when you listen to something, your ears go to George's voice, you know, 
you can go and solo the bass track and it's exciting, but whatever's going on, whatever he's doing has to be in support of the music and, and the song. And to be a team player like that, uh, that's the thing that really impresses me as a bassist. And that's a very tricky line to walk when you want to do something that's impressive and you want to show off, but you have a responsibility to your bandmates and, uh, and to your fellow songwriters, you know? So that's what the Beatles were all about. Complimenting each other. That's right. That's right. And being, and being a team, uh, and, and sort of being in service to the music. I think, you know, when I, when I tell people, when I tell young guys, you know, to study the Beatles music, I feel like Paul's bass playing is the best stuff to study in terms of understanding, you know, form and function, you know, stuff that, you know, stuff that's cool to play and fun to play and impressive and, and tricky, tricky enough that you kind of got to develop your chops just a little bit more to get it under your fingers, but also being in service to the music and you know, and, and being creative and doing something different and holding down the groove. You know what I mean? Doing all of those things together. That that's what makes you a complete musician. And I, you know, I'm I'm biased because that was that was my foundation. I, and I feel like it's, you know, studying his, you know, he was the guy when I started playing bass. He was the guy. And then it was Ent Whistle after that. But I feel like it's given me an advantage as a player. You know, when I when someone throws a song at me, I don't get freaked out when I hear a bunch of chord changes. Whoa, 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 what's that? You know. I know to think of the entire picture of the music and come up with something that's going to fit, you know, and be supportive and inventive. And he's, he's absolutely the master of that. And I, and I recommend him as the guy to, uh, to study, but I'm not a fundamentalist about it. If Getty Lee is your guy. If Flea is your guy, great, go for it. But, you know, I just feel like studying him as a, as a bassist, I just feel like you're going to have an advantage like the, the, the McCartney guys that I know, you know, we all, it's like a little secret society, you know, we all, it's like, I, I feel like there's a little bit of, you have a little bit of an advantage in terms of playing for the song, you know, and there's a handful of guys that I would consider to be like direct disciples of him. I'm thinking of Bruce Thomas uh, from Elvis Costello and the Attractions, Chris Squire, certainly Graham Maybe from Joe Jackson's band, Mike Massaros from the Smithereens, another hugely underrated melodic player and Colin molding from XTC. These are guys that are all, you know, very melodic, but incredibly solid and, and, and always working in support of the song that they're, that they're, uh, that they're doing like they're, 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 they're the songwriter's best friend. You know, I want to ask a couple of questions about Paul's bass playing and whether or not it really was innovative for its time and what it brought to the music. And one of which you were talking about before the power chords yeah. I know that there are times when Paul will do something, and I forget which songs they are, but he'll play two notes at the same time, and yeah. they're an octave apart. Was that something that was was that mm. unique for its time, and what did that bring to the song? Was it unique to its time? I mean, I would maybe we, we, in in pop music certainly, although maybe not so much because again. You're dealing. You're you're talking about an instrument that was still fairly young, mm. and there wasn't there there wasn't a very specific there 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 was no methodology. There were no rules yet, right? So 
you had guys, all of the bass players like Joe Osborne, rest in peace, yeah. uh, Carol Kay. I'm talking about Americans now. These were people who switched to bass from the guitar and were making it up as they went along. So whether whether or not it was fairly unique, possibly in the top ten, but you know I'm I'm sure there must have been somebody playing octaves on a bass guitar somewhere. But I know in in um, I want to hold your hand, which uh, you know uh, Alan I know you wrote the, the literally wrote the book on that song during the bridge, right? He's hitting the double stops there, I believe, right? And I think there's some in um, And I Love Her, maybe. Oh, oh and uh, no, no, no. What's not, not And I Love Her? Um, all I've Got to Do. Whenever I... I mean, that's, that's a total... That's a total guitar technique thing. People certainly weren't doing that on the double bass. What did it bring to the music? I think it was just a continuation of, you know... These guys just were eternally curious and creatively they would try anything. You know, I think that what what sets them apart from every other band is that they never just kind of like went into the studio and like just hacked through it and, you know, phoned it in. They were always searching for like, what else can I do that's different? What that, that I haven't done yet, that that no that that other people haven't done yet. You know, how can I make this different? Even if it means we we're, we all switch instruments, you know? So, I mean, what did, you know, whenever I, what did that bring to the music? I mean, it brought that sound to the rhythm section on that song and it sounds cool and it's fine. But I think it was just uh, part of, again, part of their boundless creativity and, and curiosity and restlessness. Like, like, what else can we do here? You know, one of the George tracks I forgot to mention is think for yourself. Hey, let's put a fuzz bass on here. You know, uh, let's try this. Let's try that. They were one of the first rock bands to really get into the studio and, and, and you know, this and, 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 and experiment with, you know, what else can we do here? How can we make this exciting? So, does that answer your question, Ken? I, I feel think like so. I'm rambling a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I almost yeah. kind of feel like you've you've answered my second question, which would have been, yeah. if if you want to answer this, I know Paul yeah. likes to bring up occasionally that he likes when the melody of the song goes up, that the bass line goes down. Sure. Like on Michelle or something like that. Is that yeah. something that was unique, or as you were saying, you know, <laughs> we don't really Again. know. Again, yeah. I think I think it was unique to pop music. I think you can find, you know, there's like hundreds of years of of uh, classical and symphonic music where all of this, you know, could be studied. You know, counterpoint. I'm sure there's, you know, J.S. Bach was writing uh, counterpoint in the in the you know in the 1600s or 1700s. I should really know what century Bach was alive in, but in any case, Alan, um, 1685 to 1750. Thank you. you <laughs> he doesn't have to Google that. So. Okay, Ooh. good. I, thank you. I appreciate that. But you know what I mean? I think it was, I just, again, I think it was unique for pop music. I think it was, it was unique in, in, to have a band in the, in the top 10 selling millions of records to screaming girls to be doing that kind of stuff. And I, I think, again, one of the things that sets the Beatles apart from, all those other bands 
is when people like Leonard Bernstein were coming out and saying, no, 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 this is, this is, uh, this is some different stuff here. You got to check out what these guys are doing. You know, the famous quote is, um, there was some music critic writing about the Aeolian cadences <laughs> right. in not a second time, which is basically a fancy way of saying like ending on the six chord, right? No, 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 not a second time. Instead of instead of no, 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 da, 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 which would be ending on the root, it end, the song, the, the, the phrase ends on the six chord, which is in the key of G is E minor. Right. Mm -hmm. That's an Aeolian cadence. Right. Again, I'm sure that they weren't thinking like, hey, man, let's end on the six chord. I think they were just they 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 were writing the song and it ended on the phrase ended on E minor. And they say, yeah, 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 that sounds good. Let's keep that totally instinctual with those guys. You know, again, this is the thing that that blows me away that here we are. We're all like in our, you know, I'm in my late 40s. I'm, I'm I play with guys who are 50, 60 years old still deciphering what these what these guys were doing all before they turned 30. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I, I I love watching this music trip up like really talented musicians, guys who are really, really good. And they always seem to come to me. I have a I have a dear friend in um Tucson, a bass player named Dwayne Hollis, who's in a band called Greyhound Soul, monster musician. Uh, and, and a lovely guy as well. And I, we went out there for Christmas this year and he was doing the, the, the some of the um, musicians in Tucson were doing a let it be rooftop tribute concert in January. You know, all the guys from the scene are all, you know, taking turns playing these songs. So I get to their house and Dwayne's like, dude, I need your help. I'm doing this gig. I have to play paperback writer. What do I do, man? I had no idea. Like he, hey, Dwayne, you want to play paperback writer? He says, yeah, okay. And he listens to it. And he had no idea that the baseline was so intricate. And he was like panicking, like, dude, what do I, uh, how, how do I do this? I, I need your help, you know? And people forget that there was a lot of intricate stuff going on. I was in a thing recently, well, not too recently, but it was a couple of years ago. I was in a thing where we were, where we were playing, I want you, she's so heavy. And the drummer couldn't fathom the idea of she's so coming in with a completely different tempo, different feel, different everything. <laughs> and the guy's like, who's going to count that in? And I'm like, no one. You, we're just going to go, she's so... And he's like, what? But we're playing a completely different groove and a completely different tempo right before that. You know? And it, and it trips people up. So I think within... You know, for, for a pop group, quote-unquote, this stuff was unusual. And I think he helped to, you know, it, much like the Beatles expanded the vocabulary of rock and roll music, where suddenly there's there's some different harmonies coming in, some different rhythms. You know, George bringing the Indian influence in, you know, the vocabulary of popular music expanded. So did the vocabulary for the bass guitar just grew by leaps and bounds, thanks to McCartney and, and all the other guys as well. But he I, he really, I think, was the first to expand the rock bass line beyond just, you know, root five, root three, five, you know, to play melodies, to play counter melodies, take advantage of like not playing the root of the chord, you know, which he got from Brian Wilson. He, it would, and he gives credit to. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm st again, the counter melodies always would still support the groove 
and the harmonic structure of, of, of the song. Like he never did anything that was, that was too distracting where the thing would fall apart. That's where the genius is, is to do something that's interesting and inventive, but is still supportive and utilitarian. Does that make sense? Sure. That's what I'm going to try to get across. I, I, I really want to get that across at, 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 at the fest. You know, I want musicians to understand that this is as much as we're all into the history and all that kind of stuff. As musicians, I think it's important for us to all understand that that these guys, above all, were always in service to the music. It wasn't about their egos as players. You know, maybe, OK, they throw it to George to grab a solo or whatever. But. All of the parts that these guys came up with were in service to the music to make the song more interesting and compelling and to keep to uh, to support what the songwriter was trying to achieve, you know, and I think that's an important thing for us to promote as as musicians and for us to study. So I hope that answers your question without too much rambling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm very passionate about this stuff, as you can see. Yeah. Alan, you have a question? The only question I had is about um, Paul's playing more generally over the, over his whole career. I mean, in the Beatles, um, that to me seems to be you know such an incredible contrapuntal playing and so inventive. And in his solo years, I think he stepped back a bit. And when people have asked him about that, he said, "Well, you know, the styles changed, but you don't tend to hear in that many of his tunes." the kind of bass playing that he brought to the Beatles. I mean, there are some, you know, silly love songs as a pretty active bass yeah. line. And, yeah. and, but mostly um, he seems to have sort of scaled it back. Does, why do you think that was? Again, you'd have to ask him that, but my educated guess is that he had other priorities mm-hmm. at that time because, you know, when he was in the Beatles, he was, a, he was just a single component Within, you know, there's John, George, and Ringo. I mean, it was four superstars all in one band, mm-hmm. all serving this this Beatles idea, right? Okay, yeah. now in Wings and, and on his own, he's the guy. So he's not just the bass player in the band. He's also the, the songwriter. He's the producer. He's the band leader. He's got to worry about payroll, the tour manager, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Uh, so that being said, I think there are enough examples. You can go through the solo catalog and find examples of him where he's getting his licks in for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorites, uh, that nobody ever talks about is loop first Indian on the moon. Oh, there's mm. a break. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And he does this like. He ends on like the major seven, like the th- the third of the five chord, because it's, 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 it's the two chords are A minor and E, and it's the, so it's like A minor and E E minor, and then it's E major, right? And to, for him to end on that is it, just so sassy, <laughs> right? And then the second time it comes around. You know, there's there's a few there are a few examples here and there. Good night tonight is another one. Yeah. You know, 
Another day has a great baseline. Yeah, yeah. You can. There's certainly examples of of that. But you're right. It's not quite like it was in the Beatles. But again, I think he had other priorities. And I also think if you think about how Wings came together, he's talked about how he wanted to start from scratch. He didn't want to, you know. He's you know. How do you top the Beatles, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than just put together a super group around himself as Paul McCartney, he got a bunch of guys together and they got into the van and started playing universities. I mean, it was very punk rock to just like, we're not even, we're not going to book gigs. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to pile into a van and start driving and find a place to play. I mean, that's badass. Uh, so I think wings was primarily a live unit, unlike the Beatles, which had pretty much become a studio unit by that time. I mean, they did the rooftop concert, but after that, they, you know, they weren't, they weren't playing live. When you're on stage in front of a bunch of university students trying to rock people's asses in the moment, you're going to play differently than if you're in the studio creating a bass line. A lot of the songs that he was writing in the early days didn't call for much beyond just like, you know, pumping out eighth notes or whatever it was, like like the mess. You know. When your job as a bass player, when you, when you're in a band where your job is to be on stage, you know, just rocking out for an hour, you're going to play differently and think differently than if you're in the studio crafting out, you know, a, a contrapuntal line to a, a George Harrison track, you know. Hmm. So I think a lot of that had to do with the function of Wings at that time. They would, you know, they were touring a lot. You know, he'd he'd wanted the Beatles to tour again. I mean, this is a guy who like craves being on stage you know as is mm-hmm. evidence of the fact that he's still out there now i mean all of us i'm sure have seen him live within the last decade or so mm-hmm. i saw Many twice. i saw both nights at barclays center 2017 i'm like looking at a 70 something year old man going how does he play for three hours how does he do that you know this is a guy who like lives and breathes music on stage you're dealing with a very unique once in a lifetime kind of talent here but I think when you're when you're on stage playing stadiums, playing songs like Soily and, um, you know, uh, Junior's Farm, those kinds of songs require a different approach. Jet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, sure. So I don't know that his that the so, you know, I, I don't know that, that the that the creativity tapered off because, again, um, you can go through scan the catalog and find examples of some really cool little licks that he's doing. But um, I think it was just, you know, by the time he got to the solo career, his priorities were different and, and he and his motivate. He, he had he had something else to prove mm-hmm. um, and he was motivated by uh, by different things beyond just being part of a of a, of a band. Like sometimes sometimes you can listen to Paul's solo music and you'll hear something that you didn't hear before, like all music, really. Right. And yeah. uh, I'm in the car a few months ago and I listened to the Driving Rain CD. And I heard yeah. a lot of bass playing in there that I hadn't heard. Maybe right. it was because it was in the car, the speakers, however the music came to me. And yeah. I noticed a lot on Egypt Station. There's a lot of bass work on Egypt Station. Right. So well, listen to I Don't Know. Real yeah. interesting little licks that he puts on that song. Definitely. So it's kind of sneaky. You may not notice it as much, but it's there. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing a, a, a parent music festival here at my daughter's school in a couple of weeks. And I'm getting together with a friend of mine, one of the other dads, and we're going to do Veronica 
<laughs> and um, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. These are falling doing his, his bass line on Veronica, you know, his use of the pentatonic scale, you know, the pentatonic scale being the, uh, AKA the blues scale, one, three, five, one, three, four, five, flat seven root, you know, you know, you know, all those little things, yeah. you know, that's, you know, I mean, he's just, he's, his, his approach is just sort of like in my DNA, you know, that I, and I'm still kind of learning how to like verbalize it and explain it. So I apologize if my answers have been like kind of a little tangential. <laughs> I'll tell you one song that jumps out at me is See Your Sunshine from Nanny yeah. Must Fool. There's a lot, his bass playing's all over the place on that song. Wasn't, th wasn't there a story about that, like where the producers said, like, just try one where you're just playing whatever the hell you want. Yeah. Just go off and do it. And that was the one that they kept. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what I heard. Yeah. Mm. So um, as far as Abbey Road is concerned, do you think yeah. that in the Beatle years, that was the best bass playing from Paul? Uh, well, I mean, that's a... That's all a matter of opinion. I think that the Abbey Road lines, they, they, they must have known that this was going to be the final album, right? I mean, I, mean, I, I, I don't know that they, they were consciously making the record with, with the notion of like, after this, we're done. But I think they were, there, there, might, there might have been a sense that they were finishing up. So I, there is, there's definitely a, a whole other level of creativity in, in, in all aspects of that record, the drumming, the guitar playing, the songwriting, all of the performances on that record that are just like a thousand steps higher than the Let It Be sessions from a few months earlier. Right. So I don't know that it's the best bass playing he's done, but there's certainly in terms of, you know, per capita <laughs> key bass lines, you know, besides something besides I want you, she's so heavy. I mean, you go anywhere in the world and walk up on stage and go any, anywhere in the world. You could be in Nepal, in a bar in Nepal and get on stage with a band and play that song and they're going to know what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So certainly the, some of the most iconic bass lines for sure. During the presentation, I'm going to break down some of the stuff in the medley. I think Sun King... Right? But then when he goes up to the F sharp chord, he still plays the high E. Right? This this is the octave from this E to this E. But then when the chord goes up to F sharp, he stays on the E. You know, he doesn't move up to, he doesn't go up the octave. He stays. And th this, that note being over both chords just ties the whole thing together. It makes those two chords sort of connected to each other even more, you know. I've noticed that Paul does that occasionally. Yeah. He keeps the root of the chord uh, yeah. the same while the chords change. Like on... Um, Fool on the Hill. It's the same yes. note while the chord goes up, you know. 
Right. Uh, I know some music theory here, so. <laughs> Good. Okay. Yeah. Good. So, I, so I'm not using. I'm not using. Your, your, the the jargon isn't getting uh, lost on you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's. It's definitely one of my favorite bass albums. I, I think you know the, like we said before, the earlier stuff is not quite as inventive, but it's the the early stuff is no less important. I mean, I you know the the little lick that he does on the word. You know, when it, every every time he throws that in, I'm just like, ah, oh, you know. <laughs> well, why don't we do it in the road? The last time through, like, what? Why don't we do it? In the, why don't we do it? Uh, what does he do? Why don't we do it in the road. You know, he just he'll he'll throw in this little lick, but it's so sassy, and he waits to put it just in the right place where it doesn't step on anything. You know, mm-hmm. he waits for that. He waits for a, a space in the vocal phrase. You know what I mean? So right. that you so that you notice it, but it but it also it, it enhances whatever else is going on. It doesn't doesn't take away from the vocal. You know, he's he's always thinking about the full picture of the music. So whatever. So whenever he gets his little licks in, it's still within the context of the of the entire picture and it and it enhances it uh rather than uh distracts you from it certainly by that by abbey road by 69 i mean the, all again all of them had evolved as players and the, the the four of them had evolved as a unit in the studio so you know is it the best bass album uh, you know then it's also the best drumming album i mean the drumming on that record is is iconic uh the guitar leads on that album are iconic. I th- but I but I think that there are plenty of cool bass lines on Rubber Soul. Pepper is loaded with with killer bass stuff. Right. But th- there's something about this about the bass playing on Abbey Road that's like there's there's another layer to it. I don't know. I I've heard varying stories. We all have about whether or not they knew that that was going to be the last record. So I don't know if there if there was an extra sense of like let's really go for it here. Or maybe it was the kind of thing where I guess let it be, you know, the get back sessions had had kind of like tapered off and like sort of ended not in in such a good way that they thought, well, let's go in here and and you know be good boys and you know do the right thing. Mm-hmm. So I hope that answers your question. Um, I I I, I got to work on preparing like answers to these questions that don't <laughs> go on for twenty five minutes. <laughs> you do it fine. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ken. That's all right. Any yeah. final questions? guys no i i found the whole uh, just the second half of the show today just fascinating uh. sitting back and listening and um uh, and then of course when it comes to the solo stuff as soon as this is done i'll think of about 15 songs that i love right <laughs> while, <laughs> yeah, while we're picking songs and, and discussing them i'm drawing a complete blank on everything yep uh but um mrs vanderbilt mrs vanderbilt oh yeah great bass there playing there right right yeah, uh, and I think I think I think he played something pretty uh, pretty wild and more smooth than the Grey Goose too. But I can't for the life of me now that I'm trying to yeah think of it. But uh, anyway, it was a very fascinating uh, presentation, and I can't wait to see it in person with visuals. Oh, you're gonna uh, be at, at the, the fest? I'm like wallpaper at the fest. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's gonna be it's gonna be on the Saturday afternoon, 
Uh, Mark Lapidus tells me sometime before 3 p.m. Sure. <laughs> well, I hope it's not on the same time we have our panel. <laughs> yeah, so do I, actually. <laughs> have to talk to Al about that, I guess. Okay. Um, so, uh, again, uh, John Montagna has been our special guest here. He will be at the Fest for Beatle fans. Uh, are you there all three days or just on the Saturday? Uh, no, I'm, I'm actually, I'm subbing for Glenn Burtnick on the Friday night. Okay. With uh, with Liverpool, I guess Friday night is the the dance party. Right. I think it's called. Yeah. yeah. So so I'm going to be playing with Liverpool on the Friday night, hmm. and then Saturday I'm doing the uh, the bass workshop. And okay. one quick thing, unrelated to the Beatles, uh, you were at the big top of the show. We were talking about you having worked with Alan Parsons. You're on two albums, if I'm not mistaken, right? I'm uh, on one studio and one live record. The last studio album. Uh, no. Path? no, no, no. I'm only the only recorded work with Alan that I did was live. We did a, a show in Madrid in May of 2004. We did a show at the Plaza Mayor in Madrid and it was this huge outdoor thing with like 12,000 people. And it was broadcast on Spanish television. And Alan got a hold of the video footage, the raw video footage and the raw audio. It turns out they'd re- they'd done a multi-track recording and he did a mix and put it out as uh li- Alan Parsons live in Madrid. And it's been re-released a few times. Right. Um, you know, the, the live in Madrid thing, but I, no, I actually never, I never did have the pleasure to uh, be in the studio with him. Although having him as a band leader, I got a sense of his production genius. Uh, we were learning the, the, a valid path had just come out when we were like when we had just started playing with him so we had to learn those songs and there was one song where he made like a very sort of my what i thought was a minor suggestion like oh the second time through play that down the octave play it an octave lower and then you know bring it down into an octave and i went "Mm, all right i thought like well what's this isn't going to do anything and it completely shifted the entire picture of the music and i thought oh my god he's a genius (laughs) That's a, that's a producer to think to just just make one little tiny tweak that you think isn't going to make any difference at all, and it completely shifts the entire picture. So that you know, I I I feel like I was fortunate to have that experience too. And I just saw them when they came through New York. They played the Paramount Theater in November, and I went and saw them, and I got to hang out with those guys. And they're they're still they're still rocking the current live project. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to seeing them uh, March first in Tarrytown. Oh yeah. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm going to see them also in uh, New Jersey. I forget where exactly, but it's before yeah. Tarrytown, okay. I think. All right. Yeah. And so, uh, as we said, John will be at the Fest for Beatle fans on the, the Friday and Saturday. It actually takes place the whole weekend of March 29th through the 31st. And uh, if you want more information about the Fest, you can just go to their website, which is thefest.com. I also want to very quickly plug... One of the greatest concerts I've been to, <laughs> which is called The Concert for Bangladesh Revisited with the band Wondrous Stories. Right. And uh, John has been a part of that. I know you were there last year. For anyone that doesn't know, the band Wondrous Stories, which is a, you know, a progressive rock, classic rock band on Long Island, they recreate the whole concert for Bangladesh. They do every single song that was done, except the long piece that Ravi Shankar did. <laughs> Uh, that's that's tough to recreate there but they do all the Bob Dylan stuff Leon Russell, 
And the entire concert is about three hours. It's tremendous. They not only do that concert, but they do a whole bunch of other Beatles stuff and George Harrison music in particular. And, um, yeah. and John was there last year and they had Denny Lane as a special guest and Steve Holly. Uh, they had the weaklings there as well as special mm. guests. So, uh, that's going to take place March the 2nd, uh, at the space in Westbury, Long Island. You want to just, uh, add something to that, John, because I, no, I was, always, yeah. it's, I was so impressed with what I saw. It's a, it's a really huge, uh, labor of love for all of us because it's, um, what's interesting is it's by any other standard, it's a, it's a logistical nightmare to get that many musicians in one place to show up on time, to be mindful of everyone else's space on stage and off that many musicians, that many egos, that many parade floats all in one place could be a real disaster. And we, every year we just, we come together just for the love of that music. And it's always a fun time. It's a, it's, a, it's wondrous stories plus uh, what I like to call the wondrous stories auxiliary, which in, in includes myself, Ed Ryan is a, is a handful of great musicians, uh, Frank Walker, Tommy Bowes, who's a singer that worked with uh, Tower Power for a little while. We've got a horn section, there's a vocal choir. Uh, Steve Holly, like you said, is going to be sitting in on drums with us on a few things. A couple of other star guests, as they say in England, are going to be popping in uh, that whose names I'm, I'm blanking on right now. Mm. But yeah, it's we start with the Bangladesh concert sort of as as the as the springboard, and then we go from there into like other you know Beatles related stuff. And like Ken said, it goes on sometimes like for, for three hours, and it's a it's a huge event, and it's it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of a lot of love in that room. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it again. And you mentioned Ed Ryan, who yeah. is not only a tremendous singer and songwriter and performer, but when I first started doing my Beatles show on Long Island, on College yeah. Radio, New York Tech, he was my co-host. That That's how I got to know me. him. That doesn't surprise <laughs> me. That, that guy really doesn't, he needs to learn how to come out of his shell a little bit. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> i'm waiting like... for you, i'm waiting for you to play the man from pipes of peace and oh, dedicate okay. it to him. i i've done that on the air <laughs> oh you have that. okay good good yeah good. <laughs> and i also want to compliment john because when i saw the concert last year one of the george harrison solo songs that he did thumbs up to you john someplace else excellent job oh, yeah. on that song oh thank you yeah very thank nice okay. i gotta i gotta i gotta push the cloud nine stuff on people you know <laughs> In fact, John was a guest on my show, Every Little Thing, and we had a little debate as to whether or not, what was the better album, All Things Must Pass or Cloud Nine. So if you want to listen, actually, you can hear the whole interview on my website on KenMichaelsRadio.com. You'll hear us throwing pots and pans at each other during the, the interview. <laughs> but um, otherwise, we have a very robust conversation about it. Yep. So uh, before we go, why don't we give everybody our contact information? We'll start with you, John, because you have a website, right? Yes. Everything and everything you want to know about me and what I'm doing is on my website, johnmontagna.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram, at johnmontagna. I'm on Twitter, at johnmon, J-O-N-M-O-N. And the Facebook page, I think, is John Montagna Fans. Uh, but I'm on Facebook as a civilian as well. So, you know, you can, you can find me there, too. Um, but everything goes on the website. 
Okay. So if you hey. don't mind, can I, can I, can I plug uh, something else real quick, Ken? The podcast show? Uh, no, uh, the, my band, Montana band is going to be playing at the groove on, uh, Thursday, March 7th at 7:30 PM. And that's where uh, that's in the, the groove is at 125 McDougal street mm. in the heart of uh, New York Greenwich village. That's my original band. And that's it. My original mm-hmm. band <laughs> <laughs> still so together Thursday, Thursday, March 7th. Yeah. 7:30 PM at the groove. Okay, great. Uh, Darren, how about you? All right, you can reach me at uh, the WFUV. Email address is Darren DeVivo, D-A-R-R-E-N-T-E-V-I-V-O at WFUV.org. And uh, the Facebook page, uh, if you're interested, come by and like Darren DeVivo on WFUV Radio. It's the full name of the page. All right, Alan, how about you? I'm pretty easy, just um, Alan Cozen or Alan Cozen Remixed on Facebook. And our contact information, since you're so good with it, Alan. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay, I'll do a dramatic reading of our contact. You can contact us at things we said today radio show at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at things we said fab. We also have a Facebook page, Things We Said Today, Beatles Radio Fans. Okay. All right. <laughs> You're doing that better and better every single show, Alan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've been practicing, you know, when we're, when we're not on. I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I do want to announce a few things. This is really exciting. A special contest happening on my website. And it's called, get this, The World of Ken contest you asked me what that's all about (laughs) i'm giving away three prizes in one bundle all from guys named ken that includes ken womack's new book sound pictures that's the second volume of his uh biography on george martin ken mansfield who we just had on our show the former u.s manager for apple records his book is called the roof the beatles final concert and then there's me every week on my website on my trivia page, there's nine prizes. Someone always wins one of those nine prizes every single week. You get to pick one of those nine prizes. So you win three prizes all in one shot. My World of Ken contest, which starts this Thursday on my website. Right on the home page, it'll take you right to my special contest page. So be sure to check that out. And also, last week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Elliot Mintz, who we had on our show wow. not too long ago. We uh, we covered a few things that were covered in this show with some other questions that I threw at him. He was such a joy to talk to. Wow. We did a bit more talking about the Lost Lennon tapes. And um, if you want to check that out, it's on my interviews page four page, which I believe also has my interview with John on there. Hmm. So uh, that's all on my website at KenMichaelsRadio.com. Okay, I think yeah. that's everything. Are guests are guests from the show exempt uh, from winning the prizes? Not at all. Okay. (laughs) You got the wildlife box on there? No, no. (laughs) Okay. It's very tough to get box sets to give away. Believe me. Oh, okay. All right. I'm working on it though. I'm always working on whatever new products are out there. Sure. All All right. right. 
So this has been great, John. And uh, my pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for doing this, John. It's a lot of and fun. And thanks uh, for coming with your bass setup. That oh, was really sure. helpful. Uh, I, I kind of knew that, like, once I started talking about this stuff, I said, it's, at some point, I'm going to have to grab an instrument to demonstrate. So I'm glad that the technology was uh, was a, I was able to work it out, getting uh, getting it all into Skype and all that business. Okay. Well, yeah. this has been great, and. Uh, we could have talked even longer, but yeah. uh, I think almost two hours should just about cover it, don't you think? I, th I, th <laughs> I, th I think so. Oh, I yeah. think so. And, and I, I think I think if people choose to listen to all of the two hours, then that's even more daring. <laughs> all right. So thanks so okay. much for being here, John. And you for it, thank you for Alan and Darren and John Ooh. Montagna, our special guest. This is Ken Michaels thanking all of you for listening, and we will see you next time.